Well, once again, it's great to see everyone here. I also want to say hello to everyone watching online and everyone over in our video cafe. We're glad that all of you guys joined us for the last weekend of our How to Marry Well series. Witty is going to be out here in just a little while so that we can get to our question and answers today. But first, I want to briefly overview what we've been doing. So this whole year, we've been going back to the basics and so to go back to the basics, the simplest thing, the most basic thing you can do in your life is to behave like you, to behave like you believe. It's how you build a great life and it's how you build a great marriage. And so here at City Church, we believe that our marriages matter. And so we behave like we believe by marrying from the inside out. And we have set up a framework for how to do that for those of you who are single or dating. There are three steps to marrying from the inside out. The first is to discover your basic life purpose. And then when you come together in your relationship, to have some commonalities or a common life purpose together. The second step is to be compatible, uh, to truly work through areas of incompatibility in your life because... Anywhere that you're not compatible will eventually turn into conflict. And then the third step is to seek confirmation. Last week we talked about how you have to find someone who knows you well and who loves you deeply and is wise enough to speak into your life and into your relationships and look for their approval or their confirmation on your relationship. Now. Uh, for many of you, you're already married, and hopefully you have a great marriage, but perhaps you married from the outside in, and now you are struggling. And many of the questions we got were from people who are already in a marriage. If you're in a marriage and you're struggling, the great thing is that you can still follow these three steps of finding your basic purpose, your compatibility, and getting confirmation. Here at City Church, we have seen so many marriages on the brink of divorce, right in the midst of the pain and the hurt, who have actually been saved. They got a new lease on their marriage because they were willing to not give up and to do the hard work from the inside out. And so this framework, these three steps, uh, this is how we will be trying to answer your questions today, and our hope is that you will leave with even more clarity on what it really means to marry well. So before we get going, would you guys join me in prayer? God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for our relationships. And God, we know that marriage matters. It matters to us, and it matters to you. And so I pray that you would guide us through this conversation that you would bring us clarity, that you would speak through Witty and I exactly what we need to hear today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Witty, how you doing? Hey, dude. Would you guys uh, welcome Witty and give him a round of applause? Yeah. So before we get going, uh, let's give some credentials. Uh, you've been married to Linda for how long? 34 years almost. 34 years. Yeah, yeah it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Now... Throughout this series, we have gotten to share kind of our perspective on our marriages. What is something that Linda would want everyone to know about y'all's relationship? Uh, how we got married? Well, you, you know, one of the things we have been saying about getting married is slow down, take your time. All the research indicates that's a wise thing to do. And of course, even though there was the shorts factor involved with marrying Linda, I really was pretty wise in my young age, and so she was in a hurry to get married. You know, I understand. I mean, I was just pretty, I was something else. I mean, I kind of. So I slowed things down. 
And when she's annoyed at me, what she wants everyone to know is that I slowed it down by breaking the engagement twice. But we've been married 33 years. There you go. So it worked. All right. Well, uh, Katie and I have been married for four years, um, and that's all the story that I'm going to tell. Uh, really? Uh, oh, sure. That's all you got? That's, no, that's all I got, four years. At, when I'm 30 years in, I can tell stories <laughs> okay. like that. Okay. All right. Um, but I think that the advantage is that we are in very different places in mm. our relationship, different yeah. places in our marriage. Uh, and so you get a wide perspective from people who are kind of just out of the honeymoon phase, um, and uh, a blended family, me marrying Katie when she had kids, and, yeah. and y'all having been married for a long time in more of a traditional family setting. And, uh, and so I think all of that is going to help us as we open this dialogue up and uh, we begin answering some of y'all's questions and hearing from y'all uh, about what you want to know about how to marry well. So one of the first questions that came in uh, is, how do I get my boyfriend to agree with me? Now, Now, maybe your question wasn't as direct as this one, um, but I do appreciate the directness. But the root of it is about getting your way, getting people to agree with you. And so maybe some of the questions you have about relationships or you have about your marriage ultimately boils down to how do I get my way on this particular issue or how do I get my way in this particular circumstance? And so if those are the kind of questions that you're asking, um, I want to suggest that getting your way is actually not the point of a relationship. Now, we all know that. We can say it. It looks good on paper. But we often find ourselves really struggling in our relationships because if we're honest, things aren't going the way that we want them to go. And so the three parts of how to marry well are common purpose, our compatibility, and seeking confirmation. But the way that you marry from the outside in is based on chemistry. And chemistry is things like, do we look good together? And do we generally get along? And we, are we at the same level of popularity in our social circles? And oftentimes, when we're trying to get someone to agree with us, what we think that we're doing by getting our way is creating chemistry. Because now we're on the same page. And so if I can get uh, the person I'm in a relationship to agree with me or to come to my side of things, then now our chemistry level has increased. But what you're actually doing instead of creating chemistry is you are probably masking an incompatibility. And so part of doing the hard work before you make the lifelong commitment of marriage, part of marrying from the inside out is finding these areas where you're incompatible and working through them. But if your goal is just to simply get your way, if your goal is simply to get someone to agree with you, then you're actually taking what is inside and forcing it down deeper in there. And what we've learned in this series is that the inside will eventually come out. So if you're dating or you're in a relationship and you're considering marriage and you constantly force someone to come to your side and to agree with you and you constantly get your way, then it may seem like your chemistry is increasing, but eventually maybe you get married and a few months later or a few years later or a decade later, those incompatibilities that you're masking will make their way out after you've already made a lifelong commitment. 
And so what I would encourage you to do is instead of making the focus to get someone to agree with you or to always come to your side on things, to open up the dialogue. It will be harder, but actually discover the areas of incompatibility. Actually discover the areas where you may not have the same basic life purpose and then see if you can work through those, do the hard work before you go and make a lifelong marriage commitment. Yeah. You know, Clayton, I think uh, getting my boyfriend or my girlfriend to agree with me is actually exactly the opposite of what we're teaching in this series. Really what you're looking for is someone with whom you do agree, not getting someone to agree with you, not trying to persuade them, as you said, to your point of view. That's always ultimately going to be some form of manipulation. And you don't build a marriage, you don't build a relationship on manipulation, you build it on a common love, a common trust, and compatibility just makes that easier to do. And so if you don't agree with each other, rather than trying to get over that hump, if you consistently disagree, maybe that's an indication you're not compatible. Wow. Well, the next question, it says... If my significant other and I have different opinions about raising children and disciplining them, and we can't find a compromise right now, should we still be considering marriage? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I know it's the kind of question. There could be any number of categories that you're not in agreement right now. And to me, um, two of the most significant words in that question is the word right now. And so what you're trying to do whenever you're looking in step number two, are we compatible, is right now can be good, but also it implies if we're not in agreement right now, maybe we'll get in agreement out there in the future. And that could happen, but it often doesn't happen. So let me just remind everyone that there's two uh, components that we talked about in the area of compatibility that I think applies to this question. First of all, if you might remember that there were what we called the 16 core principles or dimensions of compatibility. And in these 16 areas, the scary thing about them is, is that you don't change much in those areas. And one of those 16 core areas is the family background that you came from and how that affected you. And so if you aren't together on it right now, there's a good chance that you aren't going to be on, you know, together on it in the future as well. And so that ought to be like a flashing yellow light in the corner of your eye. Also, you might remember that we talked about the seven screening dimensions. And those screening dimensions are like a filter. They're like a screen on a window, a screen on a door. It is designed to keep something out. And you might recall that I said, based on the work that Dr. Neil Warren has done, that if uh, either partner has even one of these screening dimensions, uh, you probably should not marry one another. And real distinctions on family background, coming from dysfunctional families, strong disagreements over uh, discipline, strong disagreements over 
how to be a step-parent in a blended family, these kinds of issues can be a screening dimension, which if you can't get together on that, if the rift between you is serious enough, you really might want to consider walking away from each other. You know, the thing that I love about this question and many of the questions that we have gotten today is that it implies that these people are actually working mm -hmm. through from the inside out. They're discovering some areas and now, now they're asking about them. You know, uh, coming from a step-parent's perspective, when I met Katie and I knew that I, I had this future in mind of us one day getting married, the reality was that I was not just marrying her, but I was also marrying her two children. And so how she parented them and the type of mother that she was was hugely important to me. And because many people are coming from blended families and many people are helping to raise children as step-parents, this is crucial because it doesn't matter how hot the woman is or how hot the guy is or how rich he is. If you can't see beyond that and you have radically different opinions about how to raise children, not only will your marriage suffer, but who will ultimately lose is the children. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever been out to dinner and there is a family sitting close to you and their parenting style is a little bit different than you would like? <laughs> And their children seem to be a little bit out of control. And, and it can ultimately kind of ruin your meal that you're spending your hard-earned money on. When you go into a marriage with radically different ideas about how to discipline children, you're signing up for a life of what you experienced at that restaurant. And ultimately, many people decide they can't do it. And it is one of the top causes for divorce yeah. is not being able to decide on how you're going to raise and how you're going to discipline your children. And so I do want to uh, just really affirm whoever asked this question to continue doing the hard work that you've started uh, because this is the hard work we're asking you to do before you make that lifelong yeah, commitment. And the, the conclusion of this hard work may be that you decide not to marry each other. Don't assume that just because you do the hard work, everything's going to work out. You might discover this is a, a great person. I respect that person. We're not right for one another. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this next question also has a, a dimension of compatibility to it. This one says, my spouse has an addiction that they can't stop. Would it be wrong to ask them to move out and to get help? Yeah. Uh, a really good question, and I'm sure that it could be asked multiple times. Again, there's uh, two or three components to this question. Uh, the first thing I would say to you is, is that uh, you're already in a situation where you are married. Perhaps you didn't know this before you got married, or maybe you did know it, and at the time, you didn't know anything about marrying from the inside out. And so you're already in, this, in, in a marriage like this. And so uh, we believe here at City Church that marriage is... Uh, should be held in very high esteem because Jesus held it in very high esteem. And he basically, his baseline was whatever God has joined together, let man not separate it. And that was his baseline. Um, there are exceptions to that. But 
that's where Jesus started when he talked about marriage. And so we believe in doing everything you possibly can to make your marriage work and hold it to, together. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, an addiction, whenever uh, one of the partners has an addiction, what you're going to find is, is that uh, you're going to... That addiction is going to take a lot of time, going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take a lot of emotional energy. A lot of time we go to our addictions whenever we're emotionally drained or we're in pain, we're hurting, and we go to this addiction to help us with it. Ideally, there are really two places you want to take your pain. If you have a strong enough relationship with Christ, you want to take your addiction to him. He's real. He's not just a figment of our imagination. He's a real person. And then secondly, you want to be able to take the pain that you are experiencing to your spouse so that you can help that, you know, one another through that. Many times what we do with some of our addictions is we hide it from our spouse rather than letting them know about it and letting them help us with the pain. So... Um, Working through that is significant. I would say, and I want to be very cautious about saying this to us, but many times we think of separation as just the first step toward divorce. We're planning to divorce, so we separate. Separation does not have to be that. Separation, done with the right motive in mind, can be a helpful way for us to separate to come apart for a while before, as we say, we totally come apart, right? It gives us a way to back off, to think, to do the hard work that we need to do to get help with the addiction, to see what role we might be playing in that addiction as well. And so separation can be a good thing for us. It can actually help us separate so that we come back together. And if the goal is to come back together, there are times to do that. Also, I would say that addictions can also be one of those screening dimensions that we just talked about. And so um, if addictions are bad enough and if they're not solved, it, if either the person isn't freed from them or chooses not to give them up, then your marriage is going to be in real difficulty. And if you aren't married yet, you ought to learn a lesson from this question. And that is to take those screening uh, dimensions very seriously. And if the person that you're dating right now, maybe you're talking about marriage, has addictions, I really would want to encourage you to slow down and consider separating as well from one another and perhaps not marrying that individual. Yeah, I think separation in the way that you're talking about it is really setting a boundary. Uh -huh. And when you're dealing with issues of addiction, boundaries become incredibly important because when you don't set clear boundaries, it, it grows bitterness inside of you. And however you deal with this, because there are many different addictions that have many different outcomes, you want to deal with it out of love. And whatever boundaries you set, you need to set them out of the intention of love, not to get back at them uh, or not to show them up, but because you love them. And so the last thing you want to do is to enable an addiction. 
And sometimes, simply by having them in your home, you are actually enabling. And if that is an enabling factor, that is a great sign that separation may be something to consider. Again, not as the first step of divorce, but as a boundary for that person to work on themselves so that one day you can come back together. I also just want to say that if that addiction is causing a dangerous situation in your home, if it is a, a substance abuse or a, an addiction to alcohol and they're around your children or they're driving you or they're driving your children, that's another area where you would really want to consider separation as a clear boundary and as a loving boundary. Okay. Good. So a question came in that I think applies to potentially a lot of people. What if you're married and your spouse isn't willing to work through the incompatibilities with you? And so another way to ask this question is, we've been coming to this series, we've heard you over and over encourage us to do the hard work from the inside out. Even if you aren't married, maybe you're just dating and you're trying to get the person you're in a relationship with to do the hard work, or maybe you are married and, and you wanna work on your basic life purpose and work on your incompatibilities, you wanna seek confirmation, what do you do if the other person simply is not willing to do the hard work with you? And that is a great question, and it's one that uh, can be really defeating when you're very excited about doing this work and you're excited about marrying well or improving your current marriage and the other person uh, just simply isn't. And so the first thing to know is that you cannot control someone else. You might, you might have been married for 35 years, you still can't control the other person. And if you consistently are successful in controlling someone else, what that means is you're really great at manipulation. And manipulation isn't how we love people. And so you have to recognize that you can't control them, but you can control yourself. And so again, sometimes it might come to setting boundaries. And even though they may not be willing to do the hard work, you can still do the hard work for yourself. And so if you are in a marriage and you wanna give it a fighting chance and they aren't willing to come alongside you, what I would encourage you to do is to begin working on yourself. Now set a clear boundary. Let them know you're done trying to control them. You're done fighting about it because the more you nag them about working on this, the further away you're going to push them. So let them know you're done with that conversation for now, but you are going to go ahead and do the hard work. It just so happens that we're signing up for our PTO class right now, Peeling the Onion. When you go through that class, you map out your life story. You recognize patterns that have emerged, some of them going all the way back to your childhood. You start recognizing your own worst ways and your own hurtful habits. The chances are if the person you're in a relationship with isn't willing to do the hard work, it didn't show up out of nowhere. There's a reason they don't have hope or there's a reason that they have felt pushed away. And as you go through this process, you'll begin to understand things about yourself. And the most important thing that you'll begin to understand is that God is actually enough. That God is sufficient for you. And that God will provide all of your needs and when you can really recognize and hold on to that truth, when it's time to re-engage and to, to come back to that person to try and do the hard work, you will be a different person. They will see what it has done and accomplished in your own life. 
And that might be like a magnet drawing them into doing the hard work as well. The second thing I want to say is, like Witty said, Jesus is a real person. He really exists, and he really cares about you. And so although we cannot control someone, you cannot change your spouse's mind, you cannot change your spouse's heart, God can. And so make it your goal to pray for your spouse, to pray for the person that you're in relationship every chance you can get. Just surround that issue in prayer because we do serve a God who can change the hearts and minds of people. And as you begin to pray and as you begin to do the hard work and you are drawing yourself closer to God, then you will become the man or the woman that your spouse actually needs you to be. And it may give them an opportunity to step up as well. You know, one of the, that's really good advice. Um, I was sitting here thinking the very same thing. You got to pray about these things. It gives you the opportunity to do that. The other thing I think, Clayton, of just really practical wisdom is a lot of times um, spouses in situations like this, they actually don't do much together. You live in the same house together, but you, you go off your separate ways, you're busy maybe with different routines, you've got family, so many things. One of the pieces of advice I would give you is if you feel like you're not very close, maybe you can't have those hard conversations, what you can do is to begin to develop a routine together. And I, I know this, I've probably said this before, but Linda and I have been drinking tea or coffee together for 34 years. <laughs> Every morning, it's just how we start the day. And when the kids were young, they joined us for that when we lived in, in uh, Africa. But it's just a part of our routine, and we look forward to it. And it's one of the times of the day that we talk and we communicate. And then we usually try to do that again in the evening as well. And so having routines set up where you know you're going to do stuff, you know you're going to have a good time, it sets the table where there's the possibility of having some of those harder conversations that you want to have as well. You might not start there. You might just start with something as basic as a routine together. You know, in this series, we have uh, really encouraged you guys to do the hard work, uh, may lengthen things in your dating relationship. Uh, so someone asked the question, how long should a couple know each other before they marry, is there a magic number or is there a ballpark where it's like, this is a good amount of time? Yeah. You know, it can develop, it can depend on how old you are. Uh, it is a, a well-established statistic that people who marry at 21 tend to divorce about twice as much as people who marry at 25. Now, that's unique to our American culture and, you know, the day in which we live. But there is a study that was done by the University of Kansas a number of years ago, and they found statistical data, just large numbers of people that they looked at, that people who date for two years tend to stay married much more than people who date for less time than that. And so uh, two years is a, you know, not mandating that, but there's a lot of data to indicate that two years is sort of a magic number. So this will be kind of the last question that we have time to take, but a lot of questions came in once again about uh, how do we get someone to do something or struggling to communicate with one another. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to give some very practical communication advice. 
we're talking about behaving like we believe in our relationships and in our marriages to help us marry well. And a huge part of that behavior is going to be simply communicating with each other. And sometimes that is the hardest part. If you're going to find a common life purpose, if you're going to work on your compatibility, you're not going to be able to avoid having conversations and potentially a lot of conversations. But if you don't know how to communicate well, it will really sabotage the important work that you're trying to do. And so some of the things that we've learned, I know we've taught them on stage, we've talked about them, we've read about them, is to how to navigate conflict. A lot of this is going to bring out conflict. That's why we've been saying you have to do the hard work before you make the commitment. And so here's some really, really practical advice about how you can take into any of your relationships, but especially your dating relationships and your marriages. The first thing is to make I statements. The thing that the majority of people do when they go into conflict is they make you statements. And when you start with a you statement, it is accusatory and it feels like you're being attacked. So you start with a statement about yourself, how you perceive something or how you feel something. And as the person initiating the conversation, the second thing you do is you don't speak in absolutes. These are always and nevers and forevers because there's a huge difference between you never or you always or making an I statement without absolutes. So an I statement would be something like, I feel like sometimes. I feel like you often. I feel like you occasionally. And then you can lay out whatever your grievance is. Now for the person on the other side of the conversation, you have to do what's called active listening. That does not mean that you are actively thinking of your response to what they're saying. Active listening means that you are actually participating in what they are saying. And there's two steps for you as well. In active listening, the first thing you do is you repeat what they said to you in your own words. You repeat it so that they know and so that you check yourself that you're actually listening to what they're saying. And then you ask clarifying questions. So it starts with an I statement without any absolutes and then it comes back with a repeat and clarifying questions before you move on to your next I statement. Now, not, some of you are thinking, you must think we're an idiot if we have to follow a template to have communication. But the reality is most people are not communicating well and it's really hurting our relationships. So our marriages matter, this is a great template. Uh, let us just kind of show you how it works. So Witty, I want you to make, uh, Witty and I work together every single day and believe it or not, sometimes we have conflict. We disagree on things. And so we have to know how to do this well uh, as well. So Clay, you can make an I statement. Yeah, I don't know what you've been saying, but here's what I want to say. <clears throat> when you come out on stage, it's not active listening. When you come out on stage and dance, it always makes me feel inferior. So this is very, this is very attacking. I hope you guys see this. It's a used. So I want you to try now an I statement uh, uh, with no absolutes. Well, I think I'm as good a preacher as you are. Okay. And so with active listening, I would respond. So, so what, I, what I feel like, what I feel like you're saying is that in, in all the different areas of communicating, uh, that we're at the same level. Oh, you're is saying that, that you have feelings now? <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to show you an example of how to not communicate. <laughs> this is, 
this has worked really They're well. getting the point, Clayton, because yeah. I can tell, I know this kind of stuff's happening all the time, right? Yeah. Okay, so anyway, a real question, a real statement. Uh, Clayton, whenever, um, uh, whenever you use your skills that are multiple, and I recognize that. I mean, you can sing and dance and you can preach and you're smarter than I am. But you know, sometimes when you do that, I do feel a little inferior. And so that's an I, it's a sometimes, it's, it's no absolutes. It's much different than if he came at me with a, you always try to make me look bad when you come <laughs> out on stage. Those are two much different things that start a different conversation. Now, instead of planning my comeback of being offended, I just come back to what he said so he knows and I know that I've been listening. So you, you feel like, um, because sometimes I'm in different roles uh, on the weekend, that uh, maybe it, it seems like I'm trying to, uh, to show you up or I'm trying to make a point. Well, I think it's possible someone could take it that way. And so at this point in the conversation, we've gone from an accusation or from hurt feelings or from feeling a certain way to having a real conversation that we can actually come to a solution on. Now, if you have not been practicing this kind of communication, you, you may not be able to move into solution for a while because what you're doing is you're building equity. You're not attacking each other. You're not making uh, these exaggerated statements. You're just dialoguing about real things that are really happening in your relationship. And if we can learn to communicate well, then a lot of these problems that are coming in and a lot of these tensions that we're seeing in these questions can be resolved simply by talking them through. Yeah. Good. So that's all the time that we have for questions. We hope that this was helpful to you guys. And uh, I'm gonna ask Witty to kind of wrap us up. Yeah. So if you haven't been here over the last three weeks, tonight, the fourth week, you might be wondering, why did they do this How to Marry Well series anyway? You know, we're in this whole season of back to the basics. And you know we've been telling you when you don't know what to do, your life is stuck, you're not sure how to move forward, you have to go back to the basics and behave like you believe. And uh, one of the most important basic areas of our life is this whole question of marriage. And marriage has so much to do with your own happiness, it has so much to do with your own prosperity, and it has a lot to do with your impact in the world and the reason God put you on this earth. You know, I had a really good friend, he's still a good friend of mine, that uh, uh, Linda and I knew when we were on the mission field together in East Africa. And this guy was just a fantastic young man. I was about uh, 10, 15 years older than him. We met at a theological seminary together. He was working on a PhD, and his whole motivation for doing that was so that he could go back to Africa and teach uh, you know, men and women who were in ministry in the churches there. And uh, as a result of the work that he did, he really just never had the opportunity um, to marry because he was just studying for like eight years straight. And uh, this guy was one of the most dedicated young missionaries that we had. Even though he had a PhD in New Testament, uh, he taught in southern Sudan. Uh, he taught men and women who couldn't even read and write. Tom was giving his life away. He was serving these people. And he lived in a mud hut. He, 
slept under a mosquito net. It would be uh, 100 degrees during the day in the shade. And he was up there doing that work. I mean, almost no one else was doing anything like it. Well, eventually he met uh, a woman, fellow missionary. She had never married either. And uh, she was also working on her PhD. They had a common basic purpose. They both believed in God. They believed in people. And they believed the same thing about their stuff. And they just looked like the perfect match, right? Like they would make the perfect team. Well, not so much. Turned out that these two had nothing in common with each other. They weren't compatible at all. They were oil and water. They were night and day. And everyone maybe except them, could see it. I mean, basically, no one confirmed their desire to marry each other. Now, you know they didn't listen, right? Right, they didn't, and I get that. I mean, I do understand. It's hard what we're suggesting. It's hard to go home alone every day. It's hard to think that you're never going to meet anyone, and so they married. And sure enough, they became a statistic. Within two years, their marriage ended, and even more, my friend lost his career. Everything that he had worked toward, and for about the last six years, he's just been starting over trying to put his life back together, and he's done a good job because he's a really disciplined guy, but it was the pain that he and she both went through. That's why we've done this series. We're trying to help you avoid that. And so we want to encourage you, we're really begging you to marry from the inside out, to make sure you share a basic life purpose, that you're compatible, that others confirm it. And if the chemistry is there, then by all means, marry well.